RAC's post-op podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. Specialist international medical graduates with formal postgraduate specialist qualifications in surgery who wish to work in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand, can apply to RACS for an assessment of their qualifications and experience. To explain the application process, which includes exams for some, supervised practice and face-to-face interviews, is Graham Campbell. Graham is the clinical director for SIMG Assessment and Support at RACS. As Graham explains to Chris Ashmore, the SIMG applicants are a wide mix from around the world. Every continent's represented. We get somewhere between 65 and 70 applications in Australia every year, plus another 10 or 20 in Aotearoa, New Zealand, often applying for what's called vocational registration. And what are the pathways available to SMIGs wanting to work in Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand? In Australia... There is a pathway called short-term training, and that's for surgeons or doctors who want some upskilling, often to do what we might call a fellowship position. It's for doctors who don't want to stay in Australia permanently, but want to come for a year or two or maybe three and get some training in something specific to upskill themselves before they go back to their own country. The main pathway we'll be talking about today is the specialist pathway, which leads to fellowship of RACs and in Australia also leads to registration as a specialist. In New Zealand, there is another pathway, the vocational registration pathway, which leads to specialist recognition, but only in New Zealand, and doesn't lead to a fellowship with RACs. And what does the application process look like? And is there a difference between applying for Australia and Aotearoa, New Zealand? The RACs process is the same, using the same criteria and the same standards. The vocational registration pathway in New Zealand doesn't lead to college fellowship. The assessment process is rather similar, but it's done on behalf of the Medical Council of New Zealand, where RACs is purely advising the Medical Council. It's not necessarily leading to a college pathway. But for those that want fellowship of RACs, the process, the pathways are identical. And what about surgical specialties? Is there a difference of application process between those specialties? Not really. The process is still the same, but there are some requirements uh, that are specialty specific for training or for experience. So the requirements to be a neurosurgeon are different to that being a cardiac surgeon, but the process and the application is the same. And what criteria does RACS use when assessing comparability between SIMG's international training to the Australia Aotearoa New Zealand standards? The first thing we assess is recency of practice. And so we want to see that within the last two years, the applicant has obviously medical registration and also a specialist registration, having completed a specialist qualification in their own country. We like to see a certificate of good standing. We want the applicant to have been, in the last two years, been in practice, in clinical practice for at least 12 months and at least six months continuously. We want them to show that they have evidence they've performed 100 major cases as primary operator and we want evidence that they are engaged in CPD, in particular that they are engaged in surgical audit, which is peer-reviewed, and that they are showing that they're engaged in maintaining their knowledge and skills. We then look at the training program that they've undertaken. 
The training program needs to have had some external accreditation and the agencies that do that vary in different countries. We look at the duration of the training and the requirements do differ a little bit between specialties. We want to know that they've done rotations of at least three months duration and moved around. We'd ideally like to see them the training have occurred in more than one institution. But if, and we recognise in some countries that doesn't happen, but if all the training is in one institution, we'd like to see that there was rotation between units in that institution that enables exposure of the trainee to multiple surgeons. We want to know that they've had operative experience with an increase in responsibility through the time, that there were in-training assessments during their training, that they demonstrate independent decision-making during training, that they've been involved in supervised outpatient clinics as well as managing inpatients, and that the range of procedures and conditions they've been exposed to is similar to what we would expect a trainee in the RAC-SET program in Australia or Aotearoa or New Zealand. We'd like to see evidence of research and that they've engaged in appropriate skills courses. Now, we recognise that not every training program around the world meets all those standards, and if it doesn't, We look at the postgraduate training and experience, sort of what we might call fellowship positions, and we would look at those fellowship positions to see do they address gaps in the training, do they enable acquisition of new skills, were they exposed to multiple surgeons and primary operating and also independent clinical decision making. We'd also like to see in those positions evidence that there was structured feedback or assessment to confirm that the SIMG is performing or was performing at a consultant level. The final thing we look at is the depth and scope of practice. So this is only for surgeons who have been consultants for more than five years or five years or more. If they've been less, we'll judge them partially comparable. If they've been five or more years a consultant, we look at their depth and scope of their consultant practice and we're really asking ourselves three questions. Can they manage emergency presentations across the breadth of the specialty? Can they perform a suitable range of emergency procedures? And do they have an elective practice that is consistent with the specialty they're asking us to assess them? And as a a rule of thumb, we would ask ourselves, could this surgeon safely be on call at a medium-sized hospital? And that's probably a rule of thumb. Having assessed all that, we do look at the non-technical skills, and we'd like to see that in evidence in the curriculum, in the training program, in referee reports, And at interview, we will make an assessment of their non-technical skills by asking questions and giving scenarios that test non-technical skills. I stress that in the application process, evidence is required. So I know it seems tedious to those that apply, but we're after evidence that those things that we're, we're requiring or asking for are there. So we can't assume that something's there unless the evidence is provided. So there's a fair bit of documentation and evidence required to demonstrate the recency, the comparable training program, what the postgraduate training and experience was, and what the depth of scope and practice might be if there's more than five years. So it's quite a fair bit of evidence required. Quite a bit. What about a formal exam? Are they expected to uh, sit a fellowship exam? Candidates that are found to be partially comparable to an ANZ uh, trained surgeon will be asked to do the fellowship examination. There's a significant cohort of candidates who are found substantially comparable and they are not asked to do the fellowship examination. They're asked to do a period of supervised practice and if that's satisfactory can proceed to fellowship without the examination. 
The percentages vary. They vary a little bit in the different specialties and from year to year. But perhaps overall, 60 to 70% of our applicants, of those that are found to be comparable at all, will be judged partially comparable. So about 60%, 70% or so will be asked to do the exam, but the remainder are not asked to. And there's also a face-to-face interview. What does this involve and what is it assessing? And can you give any tips on how SIMGs can best prepare for an interview? Sure. So the face-to-face interview aims to clarify any matters that weren't clear in the document-based phase of the assessment. The assessors that did the document phase will probably have some questions that they'd like clarified. And it also gives the SIMG the opportunity to expand on any aspects. So again, we're looking at the same things we were looking at. And if there were questions that need confirmation or that the SIMG wants to expand on to prove their comparability, that would be what we'd be expecting to clarify at the interview. The second phase of the interview involves questions and case scenarios. They're designed to test the non-technical skills, not just medical and technical expertise. So there'll be some general questions that require just a general answer, and there will be some specific scenarios. And the scenarios are challenging and deliberately so, and they're designed to assess judgment, communication, collaboration, teamwork, those sorts and other non-technical competencies. I think you asked about preparation. Mm. A candidate attending this interview obviously should know all the details of their training and experience. And in the non-technical sense, I think it's uh, well worth having a look at the RACS website, having a look at the RACS competence and performance guide to see the sort of behaviours that RACS would be looking for as good behaviours in the various competency areas. You can't study for this interview but one would be well advised to have a a really good look at the RACS website, look at its competence and performance guide, perhaps look at the non-technical skills curriculum that RACS has just published, which is on the website as well, to familiarise oneself and so you're not surprised to be asked questions that relate to those non-technical competencies. Mm. Now, what sort of uh, surgical roles would be appropriate for someone on the pathway to fellowship to apply for? It's really important that a position allows independent decision-making. For example, what would not be suitable would be a junior registrar role or a role that was purely an assistant. So there has to be an opportunity for independent clinical decision-making for pre- and post-operative management, and there also needs to be a suitable ability to perform surgery as primary operator. In general, we would want three lists per week, There needs to be an appropriate caseload and case mix, and there needs to be appropriate uh, supervisors in place who are prepared to make assessments. In general, this means a fellow-type position or a senior registrar-type position, not a junior registrar-type position. It's also very suitable for consultants. Many of the SIMGs on a pathway are actually in consultant roles as we're doing their assessment. I suppose one of the challenges for SMIGs on the pathway is being supervised while working in a surgical role. What are your thoughts? How can both supervisors and SIMGs best work together so that requirements are achieved? I think the first thing is to recognise it is difficult and it's different to when you're a trainee. So it's different from both sides. It's more a peer-to-peer relationship. 
So RACS does provide an induction process, an induction workshop for SIMGs where we talk this through and talk about difficulties that might arise. We also provide for our supervisors a fairly comprehensive induction package as well, which consists of, of two webinars and two e-learning activities. And the issue of supervision and the difficulties of peer-to-peer supervision are addressed directly and through case examples. So preparation from both sides is really important. I think also communication between the two is critical, regular meetings. So I would think an SIMG under supervision should be meeting with their supervisor, you know, a minimum fortnightly to talk about expectations, to identify any problems or difficulties that might be occurring so they can be dealt with early. So regular contact, regular feedback and clear expectations from both sides. For a surgeon who has vocational registration in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and can work permanently in the country, what are the benefits of them then becoming a fellow of the college, a FRAX? I think, firstly, they become members of a membership-based organisation. So there's some collegiality to that. There's some support to that. It uh, enables them to become RAC supervisors of training, which helps train the next generation of surgeons. It gives them automatic access to the RAC CPD program. Financially, there's no real impediment because the RAC's annual subscription is probably less than the same surgeons currently paying for their CPD from other areas. I think the main benefit, to be honest, is the ability to supervise trainees. And that's a really important part. We know that uh, training and mentoring the next generation is one of the things that gives surgeons some greater satisfaction. So I think there's some significant benefits. Well, there's a lot to think about. We've covered a lot. But uh, finally, and just to reiterate, Graham, for those listening who uh, want to find out more information about pathways and the application process and the assessments, where should they go? There's a lot of information available on the RACS website. It's not always the easiest to find, but if you're after specific detail, it's worth looking at the relevant policies on the RACS website. They're fairly dry documents, but they're pretty important to understand where to go. And RACS is trying to improve that information on the website to make it more publicly available. The SIMG inquiries email is available to anyone who wants to make an inquiry. So we'll field questions from around the world through that quite regularly. It's often worth making personal contact. Many SIMGs that are looking at the pathway actually have contacts in Australia or New Zealand. And if there's a personal contact, use it and make some contact. All of these activities are done with uh, cooperation as a partnership with a specialty society for the relevant specialty. And they also have information on their websites and contacts. A lot of people will be prepared to help surgeons that want to immigrate into either country. Graham Campbell. RAC's Post-Op Podcast is brought to you with the compliments of the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons and leading financial services organisation, the Bongiorno National Network, the preferred choice for medical professionals across Australia. You can reach the Bongiorno National Network on plus 613 9863 3111.